Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Will Europe Recoup Its Military Capacity? Joining us now to discuss this topic is the author of one of the pieces from this issue, Angelo Cotavilla. He is Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University, former U.S. Naval Officer and Foreign Service Officer, as well as a veteran of the Senate Intelligence Committee staff, presidential transition teams, and, of course, the Hoover Institution, where he was a senior research fellow for a decade. Professor Cotavilla, thank you for being with us. You're most welcome. Now, in your piece, you were pretty bearish about the prospect of Europe returning to the kind of military strength that it once had. Let me quote here briefly from the piece. You say, it is impossible to say whether another Europe and another era will acquire significant military capacity. We can bet the farm that this Europe won't because it's become intellectually, morally, and politically incapable of it. And in exploring that point, you talk about the difference between the Europe of today and the Europe that emerged from World War II. So tell us about how those two places are different, and then in a moment we'll come to why. They are different because uh, the leadership has changed uh, entirely in character. Uh, you, you look at the kind of, of statesmen who ran Europe after World War II, and you see a, a vastly different kind of human being from the kind that has been running Europe for the past generation. Uh, you're talking about people with uh, with different goals, with, with truly with different identities, people who think of themselves differently, um, who see good and evil differently, different concerns. Uh, consider um, uh, Charles de Gaulle and uh, Conrad Adenauer, the, the signatories of the 1963 Franco-German Treaty, this was celebrated, by the way, at a mass in uh, uh, the, the cathedral of, of Aix-la-Chapelle uh, over the bones of Charlemagne, consecrating, as it were, the, 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 uh, uh, the character and the history of the, of the, uh, of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, well, uh, this was ridiculed by, uh, by, by some at the time as, the, as an old man's wedding, but there was something to that. Uh, these people hearken back to a, to a long tradition. Uh, the people who run uh, Europe today uh, see themselves as uh, the, uh, the enlightened rulers of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of a people entirely cut off from that history, uh, who really reject the, 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 the Christian uh, and uh, historical premises uh, of that Europe. They're looking forward to something which has never existed, to a kind of uh, ethically neutral welfare state, uh, which has nothing to defend uh, and nothing to propound uh, except uh, uh, the, the, the airy interests of, uh, of those who run it. Uh, this, in other words, these are very, very different people. Now, let's talk a little bit about... America's role in this transition that Europe has made. You identify the U.S. sort of hastening this process first in the Eisenhower administration with the Suez crisis and then very much in the Kennedy administration. So walk us through the chronology there and what events we can look at as shaping this modern Europe oh, well. that you've described and pushing it toward its present footing. Well, essentially what the United States government did, whether consciously or not, 
was to discredit that leadership. Uh, the, uh, the, the epithet of the old men's wedding that was applied to, uh, uh, to, to the uh, Franco-German Treaty and Charles de Gaulle and Conrad Adenauer was by, uh, by the, the best and the brightest in the, uh, uh, the, in the Kennedy administration. Uh, concretely, uh, the uh, Eisenhower administration's uh, uh, taking of sides against Britain and France in the, uh, in the Suez Crisis of 1956, in which uh, Britain and France had sought to reestablish their ownership, their legal ownership of the Suez Canal, uh, was key uh, in this entire matter. Uh, thereafter, whenever British statesmen uh, tried to um, uh, uh, do anything uh, to build their, their military capacity, the opposition would uh, would say uh, would ask uh, ironically uh, and how do you plan to use these things well uh, the uh, a chorus from the back benches would shout suez suez in other words the americans would not let you act uh, in in uh, in suez what makes you think that you can act uh, east of suez now uh, you won't be able to right. in the same manner uh, a host of European statesmen who had uh, banked their their prestige on uh, the maintenance of American missiles in in Europe in the 1960s uh, were discredited when uh, uh, the Kennedy administration withdrew those missiles in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. In other words, that generation of statesmen uh, was discredited in, in large part by American actions. Now. Talking about the change in Europe, there's an arresting passage in your piece at Strategic. I'm going to quote you again where you write, The generation that has occupied the commanding heights of European government, economics, and above all of culture since roughly 1968 largely fulfilled an ambition of hegemony far more totalitarian than anything Lenin imagined, resting on Machiavelli's insight that the seizure of power over language and other cultural standards can be made Irreversible. We can safely say that if anyone detects ambivalence there, it's, it's reader error. That's, uh, that's a big claim, so explain what you see that leads you to that conclusion. It is indeed a very, very big claim, and it rests on the, uh, on the thought of one Antonio Gramsci, uh, who is uh, much better known in, in Europe than he is in, in the United States. Uh, Gramsci was a... Uh, uh, an Italian communist theorist, uh, a profound thinker, really, who owed much, much more to his uh, study of Machiavelli than to his uh, uh, than to his uh, uh, discipleship of Lenin. Uh, Machiavelli's point had been that the seizure of power by force, uh, important as it is, is inherently ephemeral. Because uh, power uh, exercised over men who have memories of freedom and aspirations of freedom is always fragile. Uh, the greatest power, Machiavelli uh, argued, uh, is over the minds of men. And uh, that power can be made preclusive by removing from the minds of men the capacity to think of, or to remember freedom or to love it. Uh, and so he, Machiavelli uh, uh, thought deeply about how language and culture could be captured 
uh, and, uh, and and thereby uh, made uh, made preclusive uh, of uh, uh, of escape. Uh, now, uh, Gramsci picked up on this and tried to convince the the, the communists of something that uh, that was really uh, foreign to Marxism. As you know, Marxism's uh, uh, intellectual basis is the power of things over men. Uh, that 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 is that is Marx. Uh, that in fact anything that is uh, not based on uh, uh, an economic power is ephemeral. Gramsci turned all that around and said, no, no, uh, that uh, in fact cultural power is greatest. So, in, so instead of concentrating so much on the seizure of the means of production, said Gramsci, concentrate rather on the seizure of the, the, uh, the dominant heights over culture, uh, newspapers, books, above all schools and don't just do it in a, in a way that, that, that secures uh, the power of your appointees but do it in a way that that, uh, that uh, eliminates uh, the the, uh, uh, the previous culture this is what the um, today's elite European elite has done the most significant fact uh, of Europe today is not so much that the guns are gone uh, shocks guns can be rebuilt really rather quickly. Is that the the uh, the, the moral uh, basis for uh, for national defense? Indeed, the moral basis for national life itself uh, has been has been banished from the schools, uh, from the thought of the elites, uh, and uh, uh, that is something which is uh, infinitely harder. To uh, to reestablish uh, that is a totalitarianism, as I say, which is far far more pervasive and difficult to deal with than anything that Lenin ever imagined. So, for an American audience that's listening to you right now, obviously our audience isn't exclusively American, but probably primarily so. Uh-huh. Who, when they cast their eyes overseas, or maybe more prone to look at the Middle East or China or Russia, they hear this diagnosis of Europe. Why should they care? Why is this important for those outside of Europe? Well, that uh, that is a very, very good question. Uh, We uh, Americans, especially those of us who are uh, of a certain age, uh, have have come, uh, grew up believing that, that Europe is uh, is a powerful ally. In fact, we are uh, yet today in America primarily of European origin, and we tend to think uh, of uh, European states, uh, European peoples, as as potent allies. Uh, well, uh, that used to be true, uh, but it isn't. Not because of any policy that Europe has adopted, but because of a, of, uh, of a new identity. That has taken uh, play, that has taken the uh, place of the identity of, uh, of former European peoples. Uh, peoples do change, and uh, they change because regimes change. This is a fundamental teaching of Aristotle, and we are seeing it playing playing out in our time. The character of nations changes, uh, and uh, Europe today is not what she used to be. 
Uh, and uh, America too is changing. And if we follow the um, uh, the leads of uh, certain of our cultural elites, uh, we too will follow the path of Europe, and we too will be uh, quite unable to to defend ourselves. Uh, that is a, a, that is something that uh, uh, that is always a possibility. Uh, and we ought to be aware of it. Uh, this is, uh, uh, again, peoples do change, and change has taken place in Europe. Now, change can always be reversed, but <laughs> certain changes are less easily reversible than others, and that is what I have tried to point out. Right, and, and on that note, the final question that I'll ask you, um, are there policies, particularly the United States could employ, that could certainly probably not on their own change this mindset in Europe, but at least sort of nudge it along in the right direction? Or is this so ingrained in the contemporary European mind that you sort of have to wait on generational change, that you're never going to purge this disposition from the present generation? Well, if one had to bet, of course, one would have to bet on the latter, that uh, these things, right. all of these things are generational. But your first question is very much to the point. Is there anything that the United States could do? Uh, and there really is only one thing that, that, that can be done. How effective it will be, uh, no one can possibly know. But that is to, to simply recognize this reality and no longer to pretend that we, have, uh, that we are dealing with a Europe, uh, uh, with a relatively potent Europe, to simply recognize what it is, to, to stop believing that, uh, that something that we hope for exists when it does not. And to simply uh, tell ourselves and the Europeans the reality that is before us. Look, Europeans, uh, you have problems in uh, the Middle East, say, and so do we. Uh, let us not pretend that we both have the same interests and capacities. Uh, the, there is very, very much to be said in international affairs for dealing with realities and uh, for banishing illusions. Uh, that is the one thing, the, the one and only thing that we can do, and, and perhaps the shock of reality may help to reawaken Europe. Who knows? Uh, but whether it does or not, it is still very, very much in our interest to live according to reality and not according to, uh, to, uh, to the reality of today and not according to a reality which is uh, long past. All right. My thanks to our guests, Angelo Cotavilla, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University and member of the Hoover Institution's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those of other members of the group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.